So when the yen falls, which it has fallen quite sharply, everyone gets richer. In Europe, the mortgage payment for consumers is going up and that will have an impact on disposable income and consumption much quicker than what we will see in the US because all the mortgages are floating there. So as you can see, the fertility rate is too low, working age population is shrinking. They are now finally battling the third E in what is called the impossible trinity or demographics. Hello and welcome to Open Dialogue by Access Bank. In our last episode, we spoke with Nilkant and Ashish on the happenings in the US and China. Today, we'll continue our discussion on the rest of the world. Join me for a special episode on these topics. Moving on to the, maybe the third big constituent of the global economy, which is, which is Europe. Uh, again, you know, lots of uh, quote-unquote negative news coming out of that, right? Uh, whether it is economic, political. So what's, what's happening in Europe, Nilkant? See, Europe uh, is also going through uh, a problem with demographics, right? So, uh, so as you can see that uh, the fertility rate is too low, uh, working age population is shrinking, and they are uh, now finally battling the, the third E in what is called the impossible trinity or demographics. So, uh, so there is uh, uh, ego, economy and ethnicity, right? So, so you can't have all three. Ego means that, you know, as you become richer, people tend to have fewer kids because having kids and bringing them up, as all we, all of us know, is a lot of effort, yeah. right? And so you have to sacrifice <laughs> uh, your own careers and, and generally uh, uh, the women have forced to I mean, are, are end up doing that. So, so you have to sacrifice ego if you want to have a lot of kids. Uh, if you don't do that, then you let go of economy. If you want to keep ego and economy, you have to let in a lot of immigration, right. which is ethnicity. So you have right. to so all three cannot be maintained. Right. For a long time, the, the Europeans were uh, compromising on the ethnicity side, so there was a lot of immigration happening, legal and illegal. And uh, now there are you can see right wing movements which are against it. There is a lot of protest. So I think Europe uh, on the demographic side has significant issues. I think because of the structure of those economies, which are far more I would say left-wing than, than what we have seen in the US, uh, the, the process of creative destruction is a lot, lot slower, slower. than, than so, so if your TFP is not improving, uh, again, capital formation is very hard to do and populations are not very growing, growing very rapidly. And then you have this significant uncertainty uh, on the borders, right? And so uh, it's very unlikely to be doing very well. Uh, it was also very dependent on China. So, you know, the, the classic summarizations, I, I generally hate these summaries, but it, it's, it's important to remember that they still matter, that, you know, having cheap energy from Russia uh, and, and selling a lot of uh, capital equipment uh, and technology to, to China, I think all of those uh, things are no longer uh, going to support them. Uh, and they, so now they also have to create the fiscal union and solve a lot of deep political problems. And, you know, when we think about state elections in India, uh, at least they don't matter too much for what's happening in Delhi, I mean, not directly. 
but uh, in Europe they have a big diff a big impact. So so in India it sort of stalls policy making for a few months. There it can totally distort policy making for the next few years if the political uh, uh, outcome in say Italy or Spain or you know whichever parties. So I think uh, Europe is is uh, going to continue to struggle. Having said that, I, I must say that in all the discussion we've had so far, it's important to remember that none of this is predicting a collapse. Right. Right. So we are talking about very weak growth. Right. Right. Uh, the biggest debt problems are in China, and but there it's all SOE banks. It's the state. So so you know, uh, very disorderly collapse is extremely unlikely. So, so what if in our worldview we should not fear something which is completely uncontrolled? There is a risk of accidents, which is there because of high interest rates and you know failure of firms potentially next year. But um, uh, what we should anticipate is sustained period of low growth rather than uh, a very disorderly collapse. Right. So, uh, Europe. Uh, one more thing we have to look at, uh, particularly on the consumption side. Europe is very different from uh, US, right? Uh, so while Europe also has seen rate increases, the challenge here is that the mortgages are floating rate. Right. right. In US, people are logged into fixed, fixed rate, rate mortgages rules. at least for a period of time, right? In Europe, the mortgage uh, payment uh, for uh, consumers is going up and that will have an impact on disposable income and consumption much quicker than what we will see in the US because uh, all the mortgages are floating there. Right. And, and, the, the, and Europeans are actually, because uh, fiscal discipline is kind of drafted in almost into their constitution. So it's very hard for them to sort of keep raising the debt ceiling and Absolutely. You know, political grandstanding and all that. So, uh, so which is why you're seeing that they have fallen into recession a lot faster. And then there is the issue of Brexit, where one reasonably sized economy, uh, which is still a small island, uh, has decided to break away and in, in effect uh, create uh, significant disruption to supply chains. Yeah. Great. So, we'll move to India in a minute, but before that, just Japan. And they seem to be in a completely different uh, world, right? Like everything is counter to what the rest of the world is doing. What's the thinking there and what's, what's kind of happening there? So Japan has very, I mean, again, on that triple E, uh, that ego, ethnicity and economy, I think the ethnicity issues there are much, much more severe. Of course. They are uh, at the margin starting to relax a bit. So you can see uh, a lot more of uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, you know, so there, there's that starting to relax a bit. But still, I think from a workforce growth basis, uh, I think there is a problem. The, uh, the big change there. Uh, is that uh, after a long, long time, there is some signal of inflation. Right. Now, the the thing about Japan is that, I, I, given where they are, and a lot of their assets are actually sitting outside Japan. So, Japan is one of the most, uh, uh, or not one of the most, it is, or uh, the percentage of GDP, the highest net asset owner uh, in the world. Correct. So, when you look at international investment positions, so as a country, how much do you own of the rest of the world and how much does the rest of the world own of you? Uh, so, India is a net, uh, uh, has a net liability. Correct. US is minus 50 percent of GDP. Uh, Japan is plus 70 percent of GDP. Right. So, there. So when the yen falls, which it has fallen quite sharply, uh, everyone gets richer. 
the corporates get richer, the individuals get richer, their pension fund. In Japan. In Japan, in, 50 per, in local currency terms. So in, in Japan, 50% of the assets of their pension fund are outside, the, outside Japan. So right. when the, the yen falls, they actually become richer. So, so basically they have $100 of, let's say, assets outside hmm. and yen to the dollar is, let's say hypothetically 1 is to 1, it hmm. becomes it becomes 1 is to 2. So in yen terms, you are... You are feeling much richer, yes. right? Yeah. So, so you feel much richer. And, and so the initial response to a currency depreciation is, oh my God, this is a slap in the face. This is, a, you know, uh, economic embarrassment. But uh, one year later, once that immediate shock is gone, you say, hmm, I'm yeah, actually I'm, richer. I have more money. <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, so, uh, so I think Japan will be fine. I think, and you, you've seen that. So generally, you know, like Japanese corporates, um, uh, a lot of the assets are outside Japan. Right? So, um, so, so I think they should be, they should be okay. So again, Japan is neither going to accelerate sharply, nor goes, is going to collapse uh, in a big way. Right. At the margin, uh, and this is something that we still need to investigate, uh, the fact that they have let go of what they call yield curve control. Yes. Right? So they were targeting, so generally central banks in the world target short-term interest rates, overnight interest rates, one-week interest rates. They were targeting 10-year interest rates, right? which is they called, they called an yield curve control, that the 10-year bond yield was to be targeted. They recently, you must have seen the headlines, uh, have allowed this to climb up to 1%. Uh, this, while for Japan, is a reflection of the fact that inflation is finally starting to, uh, uh, you know, so they're moving out of deflation, which was, as you rightly said, they have different problems. But the 0% the, the, the long-term interest rates that they were sustaining for a long time was a cheap cost of funding for financial markets globally. Right. And the fact that these numbers are starting to go up, um, right now we are still seeing the Bank of Japan trying to stabilize uh, uh, the markets because it's a very big change in stance. But it's, it's, a, it's a question mark on how this affects the cost of funding in financial markets and therefore asset prices. Uh, because uh, the carry trade using, or rather, borrowing in yen at 0% and then investing elsewhere was very common. Right. So it was, I understand, one of the largest uh, correct. kind of... Uh, exactly. So, so the, the, the impact on financial markets globally is something that will have to be watched. Right. So, Ashish and Nilkan, like we are coming towards the end of this section now. Whatever we've spoken till now is outright depressing, quite honestly, right? Like uh, US, not looking good. China, which did very well in the last cycle, not looking good. Europe, not looking good. Japan, you know, neither good nor bad. Uh, you said it's not a outright collapse, but it is. It is perhaps a, is this is the next decade the lost decade uh, for the world, or is there some source of redemption somewhere? So the first is you know uh, I think cyclically we are going to do better, um, meaning that so there is always a six month view and a six year view, a five year view, right? So. See, uh, there are business cycles, and yep. these are called driven by inventory cycles. So, what happened uh, uh, when the US printed a lot of money is that demand, and everyone was locked in, demand for goods went up, and what we call the bullwhip effect played out, right? So, uh, in bullwhip, what happens is you move your hand slightly, the end of the bullwhip moves at 300 kilometers an hour, right? So, same, you know, end demand moves slightly, the upstream, uh, the metal suppliers, and all of that, the demand. Now you must have seen. Uh, shipping rates went up five times yep. and all of that, right? Now, as that unwound, uh, so uh, everyone was stuck with a lot of inventory and then for a while it seemed like, you know, in India also textile companies got order cancellations, no one was buying, shipping rates fell back by, you know, five-sixths, uh, 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 they became one-sixth of what they were at the peak. 
Uh, now what we are seeing is that a restocking cycle will start. It will not be a very extreme recycle, uh, uh, restocking cycle because end demand is weak still, uh, but it will support the global economy. Right. right. So it will not be an outright collapse. Uh, and at the same time, I must say that uh, there are economies like India, uh, those in ASEAN, like you know, economies like Indonesia, some of the countries in Africa, uh, which are which are still too small to manage to affect global GDP, but they are pockets of strength, and there is a lot of interesting and, and exciting growth happening there. Right. And from a market's perspective, Ashish, how do you see this? Uh... I think uh, markets uh, there is. Uh, some degree of challenge uh, because what has happened this time around is that typically central banks uh, start cutting rates or start monetary easing when leading economic indicators turn downwards right so uh, you have uh, kind of three kind of economic indicators they are leading concurrent and lagging right uh, so the lead, so as soon as the leading economic indicators start coming down, that means uh, uh, the GDP slowdown is six months, nine months away, uh, the central banks start to act, right? This time around, unfortunately, we are already about 12, 13 months since the leading economic indicator started turning down and the central banks are still raising rates. Right. right? Of course, it can be said that uh, rates are being raised from uh, very low levels. Right. Right. So uh, maybe the challenge is not that great, but the move up, say, in the U.S. has been 500 basis points just in 12 months. Right? Absolutely. And so, they are now, rates are now historical, I mean, not historical highs, but yes. very high, right? Yeah. So, so I think uh, uh, that is what we need to kind of be mindful because once, uh, uh, even if they stop raising rates, right, uh, uh, or even if they start, there is always going to be a, uh, 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 lag, uh, right? As the lag was there when they have base rates lag with which uh, typically 12 to 18 month lag by which it starts to reflect in terms of slowdown. Correct. Even when they start cutting, cutting rate, it won't be yeah. immediate, yep. right? So I think that's what we need to watch out for because if there is a large kind of pause, so uh, 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 I think the consensus is that this or the next would be the last. Uh, rate increase by the Fed, but I think the bigger question is what is the time uh, when it cuts the rates next, right? So uh, is it uh, high, higher but for how long, right? So I think that is the biggest question that the market is debating till now. I think uh, given what's happened to the inflation prints uh, recently, I think market uh, was expecting that uh, uh, rate cuts will start coming from uh, first half of next year. I think now that view is changing and uh, markets are kind of uh, starting worrying that uh, we will have high rates for longer. Understood. So moving on to perhaps a little bit of optimism in our, in our last uh, topic for the day, which is India. Uh, India seems to be in this Goldilocks uh, position. Uh, and so great to hear from you, Nilkanth, on like macro-wise, how does this look and, you know, uh, how sustainable is this story? No, so I'm, I'm quite positive. Uh, I, I think we will not be immune to the global slowdown and some of that is starting to show up, right? So we are seeing like IT companies reporting weak numbers. We have seen some of the exporters like in textiles having struggling a bit. Um, 
uh, I, I think metal companies will also start getting into some some serious uh, problems, but uh, some of them. Uh, but uh, on the whole, uh, there is uh, uh, from a you know five-year perspective, medium-term perspective, I think there is uh, significant room for optimism. Uh, I'll summarize it into three parts, right? So using the same framework of capital input, labor input, and total factor productivity. So on the labor side, less said the better. I, mean, I think the, uh, we all know that uh, India's demographic uh, dividend is now going to play out over the next 25, 30 years. It also kind of puts a gun to our head that look, we have to grow whatever we can in the next 30 years. So we therefore, we should not be happy with 7% growth. We should to target 8, 9% growth because just like China and Thailand are at risk of growing old before they grow rich, uh, uh, if we don't become a rich country by 2053, we will also run that risk of growing out before we finish. I mean, it's too late for all of us here, but uh, I think, you know, <laughs> as, as, as an ambition, uh, I, I think we should uh, we should target that. So, uh, uh, so the demographic, uh, so the labor force growth with improved quality, because education number, um, if you look at some of the education indicators, they are phenomenal. Right. So the percentage of people who uh, are in the 18 to 24 age group who were uh, either in college or had graduated uh, has has sort of become more like 25% versus being a fraction of that just one generation back. So there is a there is a remarkable, there is a long way to go but very significant improvement. So labor input should grow. TFP, total factor productivity or productivity is growing because the state in India and it's not just the center but the states also are realizing that you need to let businesses flourish. right and. Uh, and, and that's very clearly visible in many of the government policies. You look at, you know, uh, schemes like the PLI schemes, at least in design, some of the implementation issues are now emerging, but at least in design, the desire to create champions was very clear. You look at the pro-business policies of many state governments. The fact that state governments like UP and TN and Maharashtra and Gujarat, they all have trillion dollar GDP targets is actually quite positive. So, so I think labor growth can be 1%. <coughs> TFP growth, and you'll be, you'll be surprised to hear this, between 2014 and 19, um, when China's TFP was falling at 1.5% a year, India's was growing at 2.5% a year. Wow. Right? So the, the reason why our economy slowed down before COVID was because of shortage of capital formation. Right. I'll come to that at the last. So even if you assume not 25 but 2% growth, so you have 1 plus 2, 3%, right? Now what happens to capital formation? Capital formation is almost by definition cyclical. Right? So there are cycles where you deleverage, there are cycles where you leverage. Yep. Now, uh, uh, not only are uh, corporate balance sheets the most delevered we have seen in 15, 20 years, but even the lender's balance sheets, like the bank balance sheets in terms of you know, assets to equity ratio, the non-banking finance companies' assets to equity ratio. So they are all at very low level. So whenever risk appetite improves, See, right now everyone is worried about the world and all of that, so therefore I think credit growth is not as fast as it, it can be. But uh, there is enough fuel in the tank that whenever this recovers, that a lot of growth can be financed. The most important change that is happening is the real estate cycle. So remember that for most households, house is the biggest expense in their working life. Right? So, so for example, if you add up the amount you spend on food and clothing, uh, every year and multiply that by 30, at least for people living in Bombay, it will still be a fraction of what you end up paying for a house. Yeah. Right? It's the biggest purchase that you make. And, uh, and, and so if the housing market slows down, uh, it slows down the overall economy. And we are coming out of a 10-year slump. 
what we are starting to see now is, uh, see the last two years have been decent for the real estate market, actually pretty hot for some of the stocks, but volumes have, the inventories have been cleaned up. Now we are starting to see construction of houses by developers. We are also starting to see some commercial real estate getting developed. And what has been most heartening in the last three, four months is that the independent house uh, home builder, IHB, uh, has also started to come in, right? So basically, we are seeing good demand for PVC pipes, for tiles, and which means that it's not just the big developers, but people building their own houses. So as this picks up, and cement volumes as well have been doing well. So this is a very important cyclical boost to capital formation, and uh, which is why I'm very positive on, on the medium-term outlook for India. Great, thanks, uh, Nilkant. And so again, Ashish, from the market's perspective, Indian markets, have done incredibly well. Yes. Uh, and so, again, your perspective on this and how do you see this kind of? No, I totally agree with uh, Neelkan that uh, I think, uh, again, taking the analogy to how we discussed China, that there's a balance sheet problem there. And uh, in India, we don't have that problem, right? right? And in fact, I'll extend, we don't have a balance sheet problem on the corporate side, we don't have a balance sheet problem on the bank side. I think, in a sense, we don't have a problem with the country's balance sheet as well, right? So, because historically, India has these challenges of twin deficit, the external account is weak, forex reserves, so if you see $600 billion plus of forex reserves uh, for the RBI, uh, probably rupee appreciation is a larger headache rather than a rupee depreciation, depreciation. Yeah. today, <laughs> right? Uh, I think fiscal side, yes, the deficit since COVID has again moved up, but uh, actually you see the tax to GDP ratio has improved uh, and uh, the fact that fiscal deficit is high is primarily because uh, uh, the public investment in uh, uh, CapEx has really gone up. Right. So, so I think uh, uh, the markets are recognizing the fact that economies balance sheet fundamentals are quite strong, quite resilient. Uh, I think uh, over the last two years, it's also become evident that uh, India has been one of the few exceptions to the global inflation spike, as well as the global slowdown, right? Uh, it's uh, uh, been quite uh, interesting to see, and it's not uh, uh, something I've seen in my whatever, 25, 30 years, that uh, inflation in India running below U.S. inflation. Yeah. Right. So, so I think, uh, 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 and uh, of course, as we have discussed, uh, uh, because the global central banks printed so much, uh, entire developed world inflation was much higher than actually inflation in India, uh, and therefore rates in India are no longer uh, at a much higher premium to global rates. Right. So that augurs wells for capital formation in the country as well as consumption in the country. Uh, having said all of this, uh, the fact is that uh, the markets uh, have been on a tear over the past uh, couple of months in particular, and they're no longer inexpensive, right? Uh, if you look on just a simple earnings multiple basis, the market is trading at over 20 times earnings. In fact, uh, one uh, uh, statistic that is kind of uh, uh, even more uh, pointed is that if you look at companies over the... Uh, a billion dollars of market cap, there are 450 such companies in India, a third of them today have a P of more than 50 times, wow. right? So, uh, so I think uh, uh, we have to be uh, careful about uh, what kind of growth we are uh, building in. 
uh, yes, India is more resilient, uh, but uh, we have to see the uh, it deliver on this earnings and uh, promised earnings. Otherwise, there can be significant uh, kind of correction because the multiples are very high, right? right? And uh, so that is something uh, we need to watch out for. Right. And Ashish, the other thing is this kind of the emergence of this retail consumer or retail investor, right? And yes. And kind of the uh, a reduction of dependence on FII. Yes. Like earlier when, you yes. know, some someone in US will, would sneeze, Indian markets yes. would fall. Yes. Uh, but that seems to have changed. So, some perspective on that. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, what we saw in the last two years, I think in aggregate there was $40 billion of uh, foreign outflow. And uh, even in times of GFC, the outflow was actually less than half of this and we saw what was the reaction in the market. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I think there has been a uh, uh, great uh, uh, asset reallocation among uh, the domestic saver. Uh, and I'm actually purposely not calling it as an investment, but asset reallocation. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, in the AMC, I'm consistently seeing this when I meet our distributors, when I meet our partners that everyone is going out to investors and not telling them that, okay, you buy the tech fund now or the banking fund now, etc. They are just telling people, okay, you do SIP in this fund or you do SIP in this fund, right. etc. So people are actually just uh, allocating more money to equity than what they have in the past. So I think uh, it's uh, not something that is uh, just a phenomena uh, that has come about because there has been a rally in the market. I think... Uh, uh, there is uh, a decided shift towards uh, allocation to equities and I think uh, that will actually continue to build and uh, that underpins the uh, PE premium as well. We have seen in many other uh, emerging markets and Malaysia is uh, one particular example that as a larger part of domestic savings got allocated to equity consistently a, 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 the market moved to a higher P band. It's not that market will not have a cycle. Of course. It will have a cycle but at a higher range right. than earlier. Right. Great. Final question uh, to both of you actually which is uh, you know India has had this multiple episodes of promising to be the bird <laughs> of gold and then we are also very popular for hitting self goals. So like what's the risk? What could go wrong? Nilkar, maybe we start with you. No, I think the, the most important uh, is the, the, the energy prices. So, uh, see, in, in history, there are very, very few large economies that have grown sustainably without controlling uh, their access to their own I mean, dense energy. Right? So, GDP growth is uh, very tightly linked to consumption of dense energy forms like oil, coal, uh, electricity and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, we are currently importing 48% of our dense energy needs. So if there are, uh, if the, the global energy prices go up for some reason, right now they are well behaved, uh, we suddenly will be forced to slow down. So I think that's the biggest risk. The, the second risk is, uh, is, is on the fiscal side that some of a lot of the macroeconomic so so uh, you know if you have macroeconomic stability uh, which means relatively stable inflation relatively stable interest rates uh, it allows people to think forward 
right? So if you are living hand to mouth, are, every company is thinking next six months, nothing big can be achieved. If you if you can expect steady inflation, steady currency, steady interest rates for the next five seven years, then companies can start investing, planning big term, uh, big time, right? And all of this comes from fiscal discipline. If uh, you know regimes, and we are starting to see that in some state governments, start becoming fiscally profligate, then uh, some of this stability can be put into question mark. As of now, I think it's less of a risk because state deficits, because of Article 293 of the Constitution, are effectively capped. Yep. Uh, but uh, but you know, if say uh, uh, we start seeing indiscipline at either the center or the state then we may see one or two years of rapid growth, but then it very quickly fizzles out. Ashish? No, I think uh, I'll uh, go with the second point Nilkan made and I'll say complacency, right? So whether it's complacency in the fiscal policy or the reform agenda, etc., because there are lots that still needs to be fixed, right? I think we are on the right path. I think. Uh, I am um, less worried about global prices because all we have discussed about the outlook for global growth, I think uh, um, global commodity prices will correct uh, sooner rather than later and uh, uh, we don't think it can stay elevated for a long period of time. I think uh, what we need to focus that, uh, on is our internal dynamics. I think uh, uh, we need to ensure that uh, we don't kind of... Uh, move away from the ease of doing business, the reform paths that we are on. I think uh, sometimes it happens that uh, we do best of our reforms when our backs are against the yep. wall and when things are better, we feel there's no need for action. But I think uh, we continue to need affirmative action for sustained growth. Fantastic. Great. So just to kind of in conclusion, it just feels like we are, in, we are at a important point in the a point in time in, in, in the global macroeconomic order and it feels like this is the beginning of something that will, you know, that is going to uh, evolve over the next years or maybe even the next decades uh, uh, and feels like India is positioned in the right way here and we have, uh, we have as you said, the next 20-25 years to just kind of make up for it. Sounds like a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you, Neelkant, and thank you, Ashish. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed learning from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.